Hey, what's up, guys? It's Mark. Welcome back to Bench Units Podcast. And joining me, as always, is the man who I can only hope the discourse as to people's favorite Bench Units Podcast host is as fierce as the MVP for the NBA debate. James, who's winning the MVP this year? Um, I fear that it will not be Jokic, even though it should be. Uh, I think it's going to tip to Embiid, unfortunately, because yeah. it matters who's good right now. Never mind the first... Like, it, I don't think the last 10 games matter more than the first 10, but people do. But yeah, No, I think, think? It, it's a weird thing where the first 10 to 20 games seem to anchor the award for the like three quarters of the season and then everyone decides that the ultimate 10 to 20 are like suddenly important again it's like so it sticks with one guy for three quarters but my Embiid prediction tipped over when I watched the Nuggets and Sixers game this morning well last night's game that I watched this morning and I didn't realize this but Tobias Harris is the highest paid player on the Sixers and therefore Embiid is the definition of most valuable because Tobias Harris sucks yeah, that's entirely fair. Yeah, dollar value. Yeah, so I, like uh, it. I have no choice but to go with that. Yeah, as much as I, as much as I hope Jokic wins, but I don't think he will because I think I I could get deep into this Jokic thing, but it's like when it was the whole Steph Curry winning back to backs and winning unanimous, and there was a real like uh, people don't like voting for him because he doesn't look like the traditional NBA superstar, and then Jokic won his first one, and the Warriors finished ninth and just about scraped the play in and people are like, oh, Steph's been really good to end the season. Maybe we could give it to him instead. There's like, okay, I know he doesn't look like a superstar, but now you pick the guy who looks so not like a superstar that you want to find a way to give it to the guy who doesn't look like a superstar. I just the, the only thing that annoys me about it is like one of the reasons that people are like, let's not give it to Jokic. It's because like, hey, no one wins three in a row. LeBron never won three in a row. Michael Jordan never won three in a row. And you're like, you do know that if you just give it to him three in a row, then people can now win three. In, like, you know, you can just <laughs> not have that be a thing. Like, don't get locked out of this by the fact that it hasn't happened previously. Like, that doesn't need to be, a, like, a pattern doesn't need to sort of form we, there. We have this precedent that limits things, and the only way to make sure that it doesn't limit future generations is to make sure it's not broken at any point. <laughs> it's like a really flawed way of approaching it. Um, but anyway, should we talk about wheelchair basketball? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So first game we've got is Mediba 49, Fundacion Aliados Valladolid 77. So this was real weird and like 33, 31 at halftime. And then we talked just before we hit record, which was a waste of words um, because we shouldn't speak if it's not for the value of. 40 people yeah. a week. Um, just arrive on the call and hit record immediately. Uh, to be fair, I say for the value of 40 people disparagingly, but a lot of the time that I speak off the podcast, it's for the value of a lot less people than that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the thing I said was, I don't really know what happened, but via the lead third quarter, we're just like, oh yeah, 22-7, fourth quarter, 22-11. I think it, part of it is function of Madiba having six players or whatever, but... Yeah, six players and subsisting on difficult shots, as they typically do. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the deal with, with Vidalid playing a lot less Maxi Ruggieri than previously. I wonder if he's, like, injured or... I don't know what the deal is, but, like, there's been a couple of games, even going back to Euro Cup, where... And it wasn't necessarily the case in this game. They just figured it out with their guys that were starting, but 
Um, there's been a couple of games where they've been like, uh, oh yeah, cool. Uh, let's get Ruggieri off the bench and run our best stuff and beat teams. But they didn't need it this time. Their starters, which was Robles, Adrian Perez, Alessandrini, Romo, and Yelmer were like plus 16 in a game they won by quick maths, uh, 28. <laughs> yeah, and you, you say they win by 28. The guys who played, I mean, most interestingly, so Perez was plus 27 on the plus minus. Romo was plus 26. And that was in 38 and 35 minutes, respectively. And then Robles was plus 24 in only 22 minutes. So there's not, there doesn't seem to be anyone who's a significant enough minus to cancel that out. Um, they just Robles. figured it out in little streaks. Like, yeah. yeah, it was a weird one. Um, but yeah, it was Salvador Sandoval did most of his damage in the first quarter, was another part. He was seven from 20 for the game. I think he was four. Four or five from eight in the first quarter. That's what I was going to uh, say. I also said that to you before where I was like, this game is close. And I wonder if it's just because San- um, Sandoval just keeps them in it with tough post-ups. But like he was seven from 20 in the game. And I probably felt like he was seven from seven in the first <laughs> quarter, which is not true. But uh, but yeah, between him being seven from 20 and John Hernandez was six from 15, you get kind of 70% of your shots taken by two guys and they're shooting... 37%-ish. Um, that's going to make it tough to swing when Vidalid got 12 more shots than them was another part of that. And better number of shots for a team with probably better scoring distribution is a recipe to beat a weaker team. Um, sure. And yeah, like Vidalid didn't have anyone run away with the scoring there, 21 from Romo. 12 and 11 from their inside guys in Adrian Perez and Yelma and just kind of chip-ins everywhere else. But yeah, it was 33-31 at half time, which <laughs> makes it 44-18 um, in the second half. And yeah, this felt a little bit like Vidalid cruised into this one and we're kind of like, oh, we'll, we'll put a run together when we need to, which is potentially dangerous, but they ultimately did just that. So yeah. As much but so, those ones are fine uh, as long as you just keep getting them done. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a weird thing to be like. I only approve of that approach when it works. It's like yeah. the maybe least useful commentary we could possibly hope to provide. Everyone um, does that. They're like, we've had that a couple of year, a couple of times this year, as in Bilbao, where we've been kind of like, okay, I know we played these three good teams recently, and we're playing this team that maybe isn't as strong according to the table but like they can still do damage so let's not mess around and let's not take the edge off and everyone does like you just always do and then like first quarter we're tied 21 22 against vigo or earlier we're 21 or 22 points each against vigo and we're like oh yeah like we're we're struggling all of a sudden okay who would have known but anyway uh talking about games that were tied for large parts should we move on michelle uh malaga 54 amiab 52 so Malaga sort of stopped the proverbial um, title party, right? I think if Amiab won this, that was it done, yep. according to the uh, commentators. But they if managed... Amiab win this, if Amiab go on to win the Champions Cup final for the Malaga, get it because they're the only team to have beaten Amiab. I don't think that's how it works. But to be fair, if you're the only team that managed to take a game off them all year, if that be if that ends up how it's going to end up in Champions Cup or um, the Copa del Rey, that's really impressive. And 
Jaime Esparza with 22, 11, and 11. Um, obviously, I don't know. Well, yeah, no one else hit a three, so that means he was responsible for 44 out of 54 of their points, <laughs> which is yeah. massive. Um, obviously, I think the story of this, like I watched this and I mean, I just couldn't get going for whatever reason, whether it was... Um, they've obviously had a big couple of weeks, the Champions Cup at home, and then they had to play a union to pretty much close out the league. So obviously, if there was a bit of a hangover from that, yeah, metaphorically, yeah. if they're a bit fatigued from that, that's kind of... They're um, also missing missing Alejandro in this game. Yeah, uh, whoops, my bad. You're right. And yeah, you didn't watch it that closely. Uh, <laughs> no, I remember that, and then I was just like, "Oh yeah, that's they have so many good uh, players that you look at you look at Amiab's team without like one of the best players in the world, and you're like, oh yeah, nothing should be missing right. here." <laughs> like, yeah, I think um, kind of the the trickle down effect of not having Alejandro was Lee did a lot of his kind of breaking the defense down work on his own where they normally are able to do that a bit more in tandem. Yeah. And it felt like Malaga did a pretty good job of being able to load up to stop Lee breaking them down to an unrecoverable extent. And therefore the outside shots that Amiab were getting were probably pushed a couple of feet further out than usual, or at least were like later in the clock where they weren't just able to roll down and shoot the kind of 12 foot bank shot. Um, I also I think we should probably point out this was like had Amiab shot a normal percentage, they would have won this game, but they were forty one percent, and that's with Filipski having twenty four was the only real guy who could really get it going outside, and he had nearly half their points as a, a squad. Um and yeah, I thought this was just we talked about like sleepwalking into a game a little bit vibe. Amiab were up five one to start this game, which in a game that only got to 54-52, is, is almost an insurmountable lead. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, to be fair, the first quarter ended up 9-6, and I was I was watching this, me, Anna, and Richard Nokia were watching this together, and we were like, what is happening? This was... <laughs> I think this was when you get down the wormhole, when teams are just sitting in on you, and all you can do is repeatedly go down and bomb away from outside that starts to not go your way. It's very easy to spiral, even for a team as good as Amiab. Um, and yeah, they just, this was their worst scoring game of the season by a clear mile. And yeah, I do, I think if you're them, you're probably not overly concerned. You're not going and... Oh yeah, you're winning the league in a week anyway. Rewriting the <laughs> playbook, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was... Fair play to Malaga, man. They, without Pete and Lewis still, and they got a combined six points from Abdi and Kyle mm-hmm. and were still able to knock off the only undefeated team in any consequential league in Europe up to this point. So, yeah, way to, way to go, Malaga. They dug deep uh, yeah. for this one. That's the thing. Like, you can, we can sit and talk about, I mean, I'm just not having it today, but also Malaga deserve credit for not letting them have it and, yeah, spoiling the party. They're yeah. probably just delaying the inevitable, but like I say probably they are just delaying the inevitable, but yeah. Fair play. Yeah, yeah. Big game from Jaime yeah. Barca. Yeah. I As you say, if you go 22 points and you have 11 assists to a game that you win with 54 points, <laughs> good. Um, yeah, big game from Luis Cristan as well, who's not really played much up to this point in the end. Has been at Malaga for a while and doesn't really seem to get consistent minutes, but he obviously fancied the revenge game against his old team here, and he chipped in with eight points on four or four shooting, which 
like we say, in a game this low scoring, eight points from a guy off your bench in 17 minutes is, you know, that's a hidden gem right there. Yeah, I actually think Christian Barba and um, Jesus Romero were big in the plus, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, plus five each. So their lineup big, got the big. job done. We're get, getting into the Joachim Linden territory here, aren't we? Well, well yeah, if you scale it up to the fact that this is a 54-52 game and Durgan normally score 185 points. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, should we, should we shift it on? That's it. Cool. Next one, Grand Canaria, 57, uh, Bilalyak Bilbao, 75. So I watched most of this games. one. What, sorry? But speaking of revenge games. Ah, there's no revenge games here. I just realized we, lo- like, when I was there, we lost in their place last year. So first time I've won since I've come back there. Um, but yeah, no, it was good to be back. Um, the highlight of this was I got to see Richard Norte, who's recovering well after, obviously, what happened to him and that was just great to see the highlight on court was we won the game and Pappy was 13 from 19 without anyone noticing uh, just the quietest 29 I don't know how he does it and I asked him and he was like I don't yeah it's weird like I was surprised but um we kind of got down the floor early like early doors got inside quite well they jumped us here the first play of the game and I was like all right cool um here we go like all the time I'd stop jumping him and everyone else got going. We had the first quarter was 23-17 to us. And I was like, this is going to be like an 85-76 because I know those guys can really score. But we managed to do quite a good job on their main scores. Salazar with 16, Ramone with 18. Ramone is obviously leading the league in scoring with 22 points. I think he's down to 21 point something now. But um, keeping those guys under their averages is important luigi really got going at one point i felt like he wasn't going to miss seven from 12 obviously pretty much like i say didn't miss like there's some good numbers and a couple of their guys chipped in with ones and twos and threes but then you go to the other side of the ball and we had papi with 29 asier and manu both in double figures chema just shy of it cheeky just shy of it um i hit a layup at one point and that was enough to get it done (laughs) Um, this is what we've resorted to now. We put pointing out your individual highlights. No, no, I'm just being like, I've pretty much gone people with ones and twos, but it was like our team is like normally it's like four people with double figures, and then me or Lucas will have a layup. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, while we're about it, weird stats game from Jorge Salazar, who had 16 points and 18 rebounds. And it didn't feel like this watching the game, but he was 8 from 29. Yeah, I didn't feel like it was that, but I guess there are probably some possessions where it's like offensive board put back, so it doesn't feel like 29 shooting possessions. But I think just him is their only real big, big guy when we played four bigs for three quarters of the game. Like, I guess that's a pretty pretty tough ask to to go inside when, especially because we're quite physical and the refs were certainly letting a lot of stuff go, but yeah, we managed to keep everyone sort of under control and kept them below 60, which wins you most games in this league. Um, And yeah, it was cool to be there. But as I say, like I was just very happy to see Richie doing well and healthy and happy and 
Also, I've had an absolutely mangled front caster in my day chair for months and he saw it and immediately was like, you're not leaving here without me fixing that. And I was like, he has no good legs and half a good hand. And he was like, give me that. I'll fix your chair. So yeah, shout out to Richie. Glad you're doing well. Grand Canary is great because it's just sunny all the time. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, I we stayed were... there till yesterday. It was lovely. I was like there being like, this is lovely, but we're going to have to podcast a couple of days and there's a lot of games to watch. Um, people who are listening to this, should I sacrifice my own enjoyment of my time off to watch a load of basketball games probably not right yeah i think people no one will hold that against you considering you um you gave yourself your birthday off going back a few weeks i don't think you would surprise anybody by to be fair for all we know we've got through a couple of games so far and the one you played and you could have completely made up the fact you watched the other ones we'll have to get people to pick out any inconsistencies yeah, well, yeah, I just forgot that Alejandro didn't play in the Amiab <laughs> game, but I certainly watched that. Um, I have witnesses. Um, but anyway, talking about games that I didn't watch, Juventud 50, Amphib 70. Yeah, this one didn't make the um, the appointment viewing list, unfortunately. I feel like having come to watch Bilbao the other week, I've seen enough of Juventud for my lifetime. Sure. And yeah, I don't. I don't know, I can't think off the top of my head what position they're in and whether they'll go up or down next year, but I don't imagine I would miss them were they to not be in the league next year. I think them beating Gran Canaria earlier on in the season probably might save them, but I don't remember if Ferrol have beaten them both times or whatever. I think they lost to Ferrol by two. Um, yes. First half of the season, I think. I know it was a two-point game, but I can't remember which way it went. Okay, yeah, uh, we should know this or should have looked it up by the time we did this. But you, um, you, you it, fix this. it's fine. Is this the first game that Amphib have had four double digit scores all season? Probably not, but I don't think it, I think we've made that exact statement before. Um, but... <laughs> That's so funny. We've noticed this, but a month ago, so it doesn't exist to me. Like object permanence for ideas. Yeah. Juventud are going to stick around by the looks of it. They've got two wins and 18 losses, and that's ultimately good enough to stay in the top league. Because um, there's a team with one win. There's a team with no wins. So ah, yes. Haven't won a game all season. Um, but yeah, this was, I mean, Vigo, all they're really looking for in these opportunities to pick off the weaker teams is can they just get Augustine mismatched against some level of inadequate defender and play from there? And that's basically exactly what they did. Yeah, They they only really get, you know, more than two guys into double figures if they're producing relatively easy shots consistently. Yeah, and yeah. they got 19 from Augustine, uh, 15 from Jeremy Meyer, 14 from Basti, Basti Kolb, and 13 from Julio Villas, plus seven from... Yes, Josh from Meyer, you mean? Yeah, Josh Meyer, sorry. There's Jeremy Meyer as well, isn't he? That he plays for the US man. Yeah. Um yeah, that's the guy. Um yeah, Joventut side, they got twenty-four from Alvin Bernal, who twenty-four might be the highest anyone from Joventut's had all year. We've probably made that exact statement before. Someone's um, got a score is the statement that I probably yeah. made. Um oh yeah, that's not necessarily true. They got to fifty. There's probably a load of games that they haven't, so maybe someone <laughs> doesn't have to score. But someone. yeah. Yeah. This is just, I mean, Vigo are like bottom third of the league, right? But they're they're very clearly a cut above Joventut and Ferrol. Um, and this was just that inevitably having to play out these games between the bottom dwelling teams. 
I think Vigo Madiba is like just interesting enough to be worth watching, but Vigo and Madiba individually are both interesting to watch them try and punch upwards at a better team, but I have a really difficult time persuading myself to watch them play a worse team than them. Yeah, they're just the thing of like, it's enjoyable to see like, can Alejos drag them into a game against a team that's above them or can um, Sandoval or um, John Hernandez be the best player on the floor against a team better than them and that's really their chance, but it's kind of, it's not that interesting to watch teams beat Badalona. <laughs> but yeah, that's not their fault. Like you come up and you're meant to be, you like you in theory start at the bottom of the league. It's really impressive if you come all the way up and don't, but yeah. Right. right. Should we shift on? Yeah. All right. Cool. Alunian 76, Mercia 66. So I don't know. This was. I watched the first quarter. Oh, I watched this whole game, but in the first quarter, I was just watching this, thinking like, I know Alunian are obviously great, um, top four team in Europe. Uh, but I was watching this, being like, wow, they kind of don't care that Mercia are pressing them and trying to beat the life out of them, and this, that, and the other. I felt like they were just breaking it and getting layups quite often. It was like this was very composed and professional, and I don't know. Like I think Mercia is best bet in a game like this is to drag people into the mud or speed the game up loads and I don't know my first impression, my sort of large scale impression was that Alunium were like, nah we're just better than you, we'll just pick you apart and get out in transition and get layups and then if we get into the half court we can score like nobody's business and it ended up a little closer than I thought it was really, like I felt like this wasn't really a 10 point swing but second half was pretty even but yeah, it felt like um, it felt like Illunion. They were definitely up by more than ten at various points in the game, and then Mercia, kind of from late third quarter onwards, outscored them by like maybe six or seven or so to bring it back to ten. But um, yeah, I mean, one thing I'm surprised by looking at the stats is they had equal numbers of points in the paint with forty four for each team, mm-hmm. um, which if you watch the game, it doesn't feel that way on the Mercia side because watching Lilo try to go inside against um, Bill Latham and Paso is like, there's plenty of guys bigger than him height-wise that Lilo can muscle up on, but they aren't really on that list. No, uh, those guys those don't. Are... Those guys aren't having any of that. And there was a bunch of trying to feed the ball inside to Lalo, not overly selectively where those passes got picked off. And I think that limited the effectiveness of Mercia's press because they were quite often trying to recover. Um, the other thing, Mercia-wise, was they were without Joaquin Robles and they started the game. They might have done this anyway, but they started the game with their pressing lineup featuring Biel Cabo and Beatrice Sudare. And yeah, they kind of... They were able to pick their spots a little bit better offensively as the game went on, I think, and they had got a good game from Pablo Zazuela, um, which they've not... He's not really reliably been a double-digits guy most of this year, but he came through with 20 here. And yeah, I thought this was just kind of Illunion being able to hang with the press and not really being worried about it. And also whenever they needed a little shot in the arm, they were able to dust Terry off. And he's 
the longer we've gone into the season, the more he's sunk into this role of coming off the bench and just getting, I mean, he gets buckets whenever you deploy him, but he seems to have gotten more and more refined in it and working it with the various units he plays as part of. And yeah. Terry, Terry had 19 off the bench in 22 minutes to lead Illunion. And it kind of felt like had, had Illunion only had the one unit they played, I wonder if the Mercia press might have worn them down as the game went on. But being able to inject that half-court offense is a luxury that few teams have. And Mercia certainly couldn't have hope to match with anything on their bench. Yeah, like I think it can't be sort of overstated how difficult it must be to be a guy like Terry who's 40 minutes a game for however many years and then they've had a couple of coaching changes over the last God, decade uh, that have kind of led his minutes to go up and down and up and down and being a guy that has to just be on the floor and score constantly like having to get going in 20 minutes and then get going in 35 minutes and then get going in 8 minutes like it's probably a different demand. I have no idea. Like I can't make the ball go in the hole, but it must be <laughs> must must be an interesting demand. But like everyone ended up pretty efficient, which yeah. is kind of if you're pressing a team, you either want to cause turnovers or you want their arms to break down, and neither of those things really happened. Like, yeah, yeah, no, that was kind of, kind of it. And yeah, on the Mercia side, we said twenty from. Um, Pablo's as well. It's got Lalo here with 27 on 11 from 13. I don't know if I just watched a stretch of the game where they couldn't get the ball to him very well, but those stats feel a little bit inflated to me. Um, no, I'm not here to dispute that. I just didn't feel that way watching the game. And Lee with 15, um, then nine rebounds and eight assists. Watching um, Tom and Ilthorne try and pick Lee up full court at various points to try and limit the Mercier offense was reminiscent of when they deployed him that way against obviously different caliber of competition, but when they decided he was going to pick Tommy Bilmer up against Landil. And I think it, it's not a coincidence that Tom seems to have his best offensive games in games where they're like, right, here's your guy, go and defend him. Like your life depends on it. I wonder if that just fires him up that extra bit. Yeah, I know. I know. There's a lot of people like that where they're like, "No, I need to be moving. If I stop, I'm going to sit still, and that'll be me." But um, yeah, yeah. Ilunion obviously settled into second in the league standings now. Do we? I feel like they've been getting better up to certainly up to the point where they lost to Thuringen in the qualifying round. Do we think we're seeing peak Ilunion at the moment, or do you think they? Do you think they believe they've got another gear to hit going into final four? Um, I think they're sure, they're sure definitely they on the they're on the way up. I don't know if this is their peak or not. Like, um, also, there's no shame in like like during and just sort of yeah, yeah. nipping no, past you. Like, um, but they're certainly on the way up. I'm interested to see if they have another gear. Um, like, even if you look at they went from Alunion. The Illunion went from losing to Albacete by 18 or something earlier on in the season to like single figures this time. Obviously, wasn't enough for points difference in the league or whatever, but yeah, they're certainly, I think they're, I think they're improving because it's like if you, this, the numbers would imply that. And I don't think you can say that everyone else is just getting worse because that's not true. So yeah, I think they're getting better and it'd be interesting to see if they have another, sure. another gear to go. Um, on the, on the flip side of that, you guys played Mercia 
relatively early in the first and second stage of the season. Do you think... I think if you could start the season again from now and call every all the 20-odd weeks that we've been doing this preseason, I wonder if Mercia would be more firmly in fifth now, but I wonder if they could have stolen a game and, you know, the kind of 3-4-5 between you, them, and Vidalid could be some kind of three-way tie currently. Uh, maybe, yeah. Um, we certainly did better against them in their place than we did more recently here. Um, I think Lee's kind of come into his own a little bit. He's kind of, I say he's come into his own a little bit. He's 20 points a game in one of the best leagues in the world. Like, <laughs> he's fine. But I um, think he's got more comfortable there, obviously, and they've sort of got more comfortable letting him loose and letting him score and be a primary ball handler. And yeah, like they are still a pretty new team obviously so the longer they go on the more they'll sort of get to know each other and it'll all sort of make sense so yeah maybe but that is also true of the other teams that they would need to yeah, beat for yeah. your your hypotheses to be true so I'd like to you think we're better than we were a couple of months ago as well you, you I'd like to I don't know if we are but I'd like to think that I think we you are can't but... go through 20 weeks and just discard the evidence up to this point <laughs> yeah start. that's why it's a league I guess Um, <laughs> but yeah so should we move on let's do it uh, the next game is Leganes 78, Ferrol 54. You're probably currently looking at Mercia Union, aren't you? I am, because um, apparently I linked the stats wrong the second time. It's fine, I just realised that and I went and I went and scrambled for them to see if to see if I could vamp and just let you go and find them, but I thought I'd point it out instead. I'm on it. Um, it's it's we'll working. Have... Christian Gomez, we'll 16 of 25 with 35 points. <laughs> which is great, and we're such big fans of him, which is so funny. Um, 16 to 25, three from four free throws, uh, 15, 15 rebounds. rebounds. He he might be... It, it's a weird one. He doesn't strike me as someone who's there to beat up on weaker teams. I always... Do you not think like, so? Well, no, because I, I think if you... I think if you like contrast this with what we saw from Leganes last week, where they had Alexi Ramone, and... Of like Leganes are not a weak team, but they obviously have no matchup for Ramone, and he dropped thirty-seven on them. That is much more fitting to me because he is he plays with a fury that is built to exploit the underprepared teams that can't match him, like at least as a five, if not one-on-one. And Gomez's play style is kind of. You, I can't imagine he was out there chomping at the bit, being like, "I'm just going to burn these guys and rip them to shreds." Like he kind of just waltzes into his mismatch and shoots it. And there maybe they're easier shots against defenses that don't set up as well. But like he's not driving the ball to the basket on weak defenders all the time. So this was a little bit surprising to me. But he also just seemed to not miss. <laughs> so maybe yeah. this would have happened against a strong team as long as there was one mismatch out there. I think that's the thing. Like he seems like the sort of person that goes out and does what he does no matter what's in front of him. And if there's less in front of him, he's going to get going. I think like yeah, I don't, yeah I wouldn't say beating up on worse teams because he's also beat up on some pretty good teams this year, but like just like he can just go sixteen from twenty five unless you stop him from like elbow mismatches. So yeah. you play against a team that's not that capable to stop him. Like he doesn't get that against and Albacete, who can just switch people off mismatches constantly and play four big a lot, or he doesn't get that against Elunion, who are just like, all right, cool, you're not getting inside the three-point line, or us, who play four big a lot. Like, yeah. But yeah, yeah they don't really have anything for him. Um, the other side of the ball, we had 
Anderson Silva, who you, if you want to make your comment about it being weird to see someone called Anderson Silva here, you can. Uh, he had fifteen. I feel like twice is the is the limit. You can you can run it out once, and then you can reinforce it for anyone who missed it the first time. But after that, you're just being lazy. Yeah, um, I ran Ranales with fourteen, and no Carl Schultz, which I don't think makes that much of a difference in a game like this that you lose by thirty three. But he is one of your best players, so it would have been a different game. But I can't really talk. I can't really talk about how different it would have been because I don't have a clue. Um, yeah, not a whole lot else going on here. Uh, Fernando Cantero with ten, uh, Filipafoli with eleven, and single figures kind of. Up and down the board here. Everyone got in. Everyone played a lot. Like everyone in double figures minutes for Leganes. Not a whole lot else to go on. How many do you think Cano might have scored in this game had he been available? 46. <laughs> One less than his season high. It is, is 47 the highest in the Spanish league this year? It must be. Yeah, I think so. We also had this conversation like, how many times has someone scored more than that in the Spanish league overall? Like, I'm sure Terry has a 50 in there. I remember there were two weeks in a row where Terry went 48 and then 43 yeah. or the other way around. Because I, I think I just messaged him after the 43 and I was like, not bad. And then he had 47 the week after and I just quoted my message and sent it back to him. And I was like, <laughs> not bad. Um, but there's um Terry's 41 in the Copa del Rey final a few years back is the one that always sticks with me. I know that's less than 47, but it was again, it was like the early incarnation of the Jorge Sanchez Gran Canaria teams, and they surprised everyone getting to the Copa del Rey final. And Terry was like, Here's 41 for you. How was that? Yeah. Hey, welcome, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, Terry's just been like, I've been in this final for 10 years. I remember. One of the, it might have been that year we were watching it. Was that one of the years I was in Sheffield? Yeah. yeah. I just always remember watching it and me being like, all right, who are we calling for this? I think it was the second year I was in Sheffield and I called Madiba because they were just running through the league. And I remember talking to someone about it and they were like, nah, this is Terry's tournament. Alunion. Yeah. Even if Alunion, like eight seed coming in. Um, and they got it done. But anyway, should we move to Germany? Let's do it. All right. Uh, first game was Ryan Verano's 50, Turingen 77. Turingen scored 27 points in the first quarter. Yeah, this was this one was bizarre to me. I, I, I brought back last week when I was trying to contrast Albacete and Thuringen, I brought back my comment about how nobody seemingly ever gets on a run against Thuringen and Wiesbaden actually had the biggest scoring run of this game where their biggest run of unanswered points was 10, whereas Thuringen's was 9. Um, and so this was 27-15 after the first quarter. I think Haluski had 13 in the quarter, right? Or something, he ended up with 18. Um, and Wiesbaden's 10-0 run came to start the second quarter and they got it to 25-27. Uh, I was trying to watch this game while changing Delilah, which meant I didn't pay a great amount of attention to this to particular your daughter. <laughs> That's exactly when it was happening. Um, but yeah, I looked around and it was 25-27. I was like, oh man, Wiesbaden have figured something out, which watching it back again, they hadn't really. It was just Juice chose then to go on a run and made some tough shots, which means that from that point of mid-second quarter of um, Rhinos having their 10-0 run the Bulls doubled them up across the next 24-ish minutes and uh-huh. the score 
point onwards was 50 to 25. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah it was, I think it was like a little bit, bulls get way out ahead, foot off the gas a little bit. And yeah, then... they start rotating and stuff. And yeah. once again, we've spoken about this. They're so good across the board that them rotating isn't really anything like anything. Yeah, but that, they're not running not... out losers. Like they're all, they've got great players top to bottom. They've got 10. Yeah, players. it's not a team that would have, I think had they started that, Bench unit of theirs. Hey, bench units, drink at home. Um, hey, units, that's what they're called. Had they started that unit, that unit probably wouldn't have been completely out of their depth against Wiesbaden, but I think it's like the thing of change lineups, defensive and offensive responsibilities shift a little bit. That usually gives the other team a chance to make some shots and try and leverage the the little window there while the new lineup's settling in and Wiesbaden yeah. Their credit, but the Bulls obviously weren't very rattled by what went on. And yeah, it's just the the story for the rest of the game was as could have been predicted going into this. We we should have prefixed this by saying it was the um, playoff series, but going into this series, if you had to list the advantages and disadvantages of each team, kind of the biggest advantage going the Bulls' way is they have two guys playing heavy minutes who Wiesbaden have absolutely no obvious answer to match up with. Mm-hmm. Two big guys. And yeah, Haluski kind of did his work early, like you said, and then facilitated from there. And to Wiesbaden's credit, they did everything they could to take the bigs away, but there's the depth in the roster that meant you overcommit to those guys. And, you know, everybody else on Thuringen is more than qualified to fill in the gaps. And, you know, they got outside their big so they got three more guys into double figures as well yeah and it's like worst shooting percentage on their on their team was 41 percent. like nearly everyone was like one shot away from them just being 50 across the board 49 percent as a team um i think there's a thing of like when you go on that run against them and it is just aaron young hitting tough shots which he's unbelievable at i don't think if you're surviving on the tough ones against during and there's no very little hope that you're going to be able to leverage the tough makes into easier looks. They're just going to make you keep making tough ones and they're just going to keep being more physical. And you can tell from, well, from my experience from playing against them a couple of weeks ago and then watching this, it's like you can tell when they realize they're being pushed a bit. They're like, okay, no, let's turn this up to 11. Like, let's, let's yeah, push and- people about and bump people and hit chairs hard and make everything really tough for you and they're unbelievable at it because they're really physical top to bottom um yeah, and it really they, makes they a difference to, they're one of the few teams that seems to be able to you know juice hits a few and most teams would call a timeout and be like hey we need to put this fire out let's bring the help from this spot and you know if need be we will give up this shot from the opposite wing for example and they seem to be able to they seem to have the resources to be able to put a fire out without really giving up anything else. And I I don't know how they do that other than really like, good individual defenders, I think is yeah, part of it, where yeah. it's like it's really hard to be defending at a ten out of ten constantly. No one can really do that for forty minutes. There's a lot of really good guys that can do very well for a long time but i think the first thing is it's the stupid van gundy thing that we always make jokes about but they're like okay like let's just do what we're doing but way harder and way better and see if we can get away with a push or you know being really physical on chairs first like before like let's not really like shift all of our defensive help onto something let's just like go harder and 
execute slightly better and beat people up a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I thought Jens Albrecht was the best um, when they decided they were taking Juice out. I thought he was very good for kind of getting out and making her have to work to get her shooting position at all or catching the ball, having to pump fake and then like drive. And then by that time, Haluski or Vahid is clogging that zone. Yeah, I think that's the thing. The only person that they really like top to bottom, they only really need to like switch Marie Gear out of some mismatches like everyone else. They're really happy to just let sort of battle through mismatches and kind of contest as long as it's not on the charge circle. Like, so they're kind of well equipped to not have to do too much work to get people out of places. So they don't have to, it's very hard to put them in positions where they need to overhelp so that you can skip the ball to open shooters. Like they're pretty happy to just go one-on-ones across the board. Yeah. So it's hard to create. Speaking of Marik here, almost 30 minutes played, not a single counting stat plus 18. That woman is a club 30 trillion. (laughs) Um, yeah, for Wiesbaden, 21 for Juice, 10 for Chase Wolf. And then the big thing for me in their stats was they limited Toprak to not only six points, but only 11 shots in yeah. 38 minutes. And anyone who's watched the Rhinos since the Turkish guys have arrived will know that the formula for their upset of Landil was to let Uga Toprak run the offense. Yeah, until he had 36 the- in their biggest win of the season. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then yeah, six in this game. So Bulls have obviously clocked that one. And yeah, we'll get at least one more game of this, but it's with all due respect to Vispan that is tough to see how they could go forward short of Juice hitting tough shots for an entire 40 minute stretch. And even then I'm not convinced they could defend the Bulls adequately to capitalize on that. Yeah. We shall see. We shall. Should right. we go to the other series? Yeah, the other series, this was uh, Hanover United 58, Landil 61. So do you ever see a game that ends in a three-point win and before you watch it, you're like, oh boy, I hope someone hits a three to win the game. And it is always that the team that was winning were up by more and they brought it back, just not enough. Yes. Um, yeah, that always that always upsets me. But yeah, Landil taking care of business here and... Yeah, Tommy with 20, Rio with 12, uh, Matthias Guntner 18. One thing I was watching this and I was like, I love when Landil are able to go Tommy, uh, Boma and Matthias Guntner in a pick and roll and then they have Rio Fujimoto flaring out behind the three-point line because I don't really like teams that run like pick and roll one side, double screen on the other wing. I don't really like because you've got no safety. You're kind of all very flat. Like it's hard to skip the ball. Sometimes people can pick those passes off. But if you're able to run that stuff with a three-point shooter flaring out over the top, you kind of have that depth. Like you have unbelievable score, one of the best scores in the league behind the screen from a 4-5 beast who's going inside and going seven from 13. And then you've got Ryo Fujimoto, who was five from eight from three in a Champions Cup game a couple of weeks ago, flaring out. And obviously, then that leads to if you have to go and pick from, if you have to go and help from that uh, pick and roll, you naturally, the instinct is to help off uh, the low pointer. You help off Katarina Weiss. And then all of a sudden, you've got three on two, Ryo Fujimoto following sort of like the second help leaves um, Katarina Weiss, like pick. Rio Fujimoto free throw line post up. Quinton Zantinger going to the basket. 
And it's like, I'm talking about this as if it's impossible to stop. Like this game went to 61 points. Like obviously <laughs> Hanover have the sort of physical ability to sort of shut some of that down. But I was just watching it being like, I know I've talked about how much a fan I am of their offense before, but man, what do you do with some of that sort of stuff when you've got, you're almost like, oh, do, can we like not jump Tommy? <laughs> He's like, well, no, that's not an answer. <laughs> that's not an answer. Um, but yeah, I think on the other side of the ball for Landil, they did a lot of like, especially in this lineup, they went like two up to sort of slow the ball coming down. And obviously we've spoken about Hanover being at their best when they get into five on five offense and skip, 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 move the ball, find an open shooter. But if you're kind of cutting six seconds off the back end of that, where you really get the chance to move the ball and get the more open stuff, I think that gave them some trouble. But yeah, I don't know. What did you see in this? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that because if you remember, we saw this game, I think it was December time or maybe late November. Um, we saw this game at Hanover and Hanover led this game 15 1. I the thought it was like match. 18, no? <laughs> some, some, anyway, Something stupid. Teams to 1. Um, and yeah, that was the point in the season at which Landil went to their three big, which we'd not really seen outside of like garbage time, roll some lineups out and see what happens. Um, and that brought them back in the game and I was a little bit surprised by their decision to go with the Tommy and Quentin with the two bigs unit um, because they've kind was... of been starting this for a couple of months now invariably really like they started that in Champions Cup and stuff so I think they've yeah that's fair I, I, starters. I would have thought they'd have learned for this matchup particularly uh, or maybe they're anticipating Hanover doing something different with the three big I don't know but yeah, as soon as they put on kind of the two-man hustle, it made sense as to why they'd gone about it this way. Um, and yeah, I think I think they were able to... The Guntner thing is just such a problem for Hanover, man, because especially when Tom McHugh's not in the game, which he only played half of Guntner's minutes. Um, yeah, the... The problem is they have to commit so much because they play this five mids unit with a decent spread of size, but no giants and the threat of Gunter getting inside and Rio to a slightly lesser extent because he's slightly more perimeter oriented. But just him getting to the elbow on anyone who isn't a yeah. four five is yeah. a layup. Like I think I think that made the Tommy Bomer and Matthias Gunter two man game that much more dangerous because they had to commit so hard to Gunter. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I thought when Tom McHugh was in the game, uh, he played like 19 minutes. He had 11 points and carried on his streak of seemingly fearing nobody in the German league. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought they played well with that. But they're then they are rolling out a one-pointer in Tobias Hell, who he's plus 11, which is a little bit misleading because they kind of kitchen sink this lineup to try and bring them back into the game, which did work um, to a, to some extent. And... Yeah, I think maybe if we, when we see another game of this, I would be interested to see whether Hanover stick with their mids as their starters or if they want to give Tom McHugh a bit more run and try and match Landil's size. Um, outside of that, I thought they got 40 minutes out of Sean Norris and I think in keeping this game within reach and then making a run at the end, it really showed what he's there for. I think he kind of orchestrated the game for them relatively well enough for them to stay competitive yeah and yeah they got double figures from four guys but it's you know a 12 and 11 and two guys on 10 
and it's just you're going to struggle to match. You know when that two man game of um, Landil is producing thirty eight points between the two guys in Tommy and Gunnar. You know yeah. that's nearly two thirds of all of Landil's points there. Interestingly, both teams only had like sixteen and eighteen respective points in the paint, so this was very much a, a shoot in the ball battle. Um, but yeah, man, I think. If I'm Hanover, I certainly don't feel discouraged going into the next game, but uh, you also by no means have found the skeleton key to crack this Landil team because such a thing does not exist. No. But I think you have reasonable proof of concept that you can at least keep it close and then it comes down to shot making at the end. And Landil obviously not short in the shot making department either, but no. yeah, I think Han- Hanover certainly... It should be coming into the second leg of this thinking they have a chance to steal one as they probably have felt against Landil all year after that game they nearly nicked off them in November. Yeah. Um, anything else? Katavice, uh plus 12 leading the team. That probably goes some way to proving that the starters are pretty good lineup. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Also, yeah. their other lineups are also all great because Landil. Yeah, one well, <laughs> that didn't really come across in watching the game is all of Landil's starters are in the plus. All of their bench guys who played were in the minus. Um, I don't know if that's a little bit misleading because it wasn't like a five on five off kind of situation. But no. I wonder if Landil have kind of twigged that they've maybe only got this particular lineup that works particularly well against Hanover um, and you know if for example we were to, if that was to be exaggerated even by a few points in a second swing and the bench guys weren't able to really match up well then that's potentially enough to, for Hanover to steal a game but also when your bench guys are Gaz Chowdhury, Simon Brown, Rose Holloman and Yannick Blair I don't think if you're Hanover you can be like okay we just need to win the bench minutes <laughs> yeah, like if any given Landil game, they they've just I've said this all year where it's like at some point someone has it. It's been some of the guys that are starting for them recently that have had it in the last couple of uh in the last couple of weeks down this stretch, but like if we came into the next month or so and there was like a thirty point gas game or like a Simon and Yannick come on the floor and they're both plus eighteen in a game, you'd be like, Oh yeah, fair enough, or like Rose goes 11 euros goes like eight from 11 in a game in like four minutes you'd be like oh yeah <laughs> of course um yeah. but yeah um okay so well, question, last... time. question time for germany do we see either of these series getting extended or do mm. we think it's gonna be one more game each and the favorite advances i will call no um obviously points wise hanover like losing by three is a lot more encouraging than Wiesbaden losing by 20 odd. Um, but I don't see it, especially like Landell are going home now. <laughs> so, yeah, they pretty are hard place to go and play. Yeah, they are. And, and also, if you're, you know, <laughs> if you are um, Hanover, I don't think the prospect of extending the series and having to play it because the German playoffs do it game one on the one weekend, right? And then it's game two on the Saturday. And then if game three is required, then it's on the Sunday. Yeah, that's Um, not fun. (laughs) I I don't think if you're Hanover, like obviously they will go and do everything they can to validate their season and take a game off Landil in the playoffs. But 
you know, if you're Hanover and you get an upset in game two, I don't believe, as encouraging as this result might seem, I don't believe one win in the books against them has got you thinking, ah, we've got them on the ropes. You know, it's ours for the taking at this point. So I would very much like to see a Hanover win just because I think it's interesting to see the top two in Germany get shaken up because we don't get that chance very often. But yeah, I... I don't think any kind of series-extending win is by any means turning the tide. No, I don't think so. Even like whoever, if anyone does, if either of those teams do steal a game, it's the favourite in three, I would say. But I, I'm going to call no just if I had to pick, but yeah, cool. whatever. I'll go, Han- I'll go Hanover steal game two just because I would like to see it happen. Sure, why not? Uh, only other game that we could not see that happened this week because I think it was just on Italian TV was the Italian something final because the Italians seem to have four cups. Um, <laughs> Santo Stefano, uh, was it 68-63 against Sassari? It was because there is nothing Santo Stefano love more than a game that involves the score 63, even though they've lost a couple of those recently. Uh, yes, uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but Bedzetti had 37. Um, he's um we've I mean we've spoken about it with him in um kind of the recent games against the slightly stronger opposition. I think he's we talk about guys who are built to beat up on weaker teams and look no further than that guy for an example. Um, what well, the weaker yeah, teams he, like the second best team in the Italian well, Cup? Well, this was kind of, this was kind <laughs> of my point. Um, in that he. Bezzetti tends to go off against the teams that Santa Stefano can just physically overmatch. And then they got to Sassari, who are not not in any sense ill-equipped to deal with quick mobile guys, and that didn't seem to bother him at all. And this is, you know, um, this is a week after me questioning whether Santa Stefano should kind of tear it all down and rethink the model. And, you know, I don't know if a win against Sassari is necessarily um, enough to change that verdict, but... Certainly, proof that there are that there's no doubt there's pieces on the roster worth keeping hold of, um, even if you have to rethink your approach slightly. Um, the weirdest thing about this game is it was in the scores by quarter. So get this: it was Sassari win the first quarter fifteen thirteen, San Stefano win the second quarter eighteen seventeen, San Stefano win the third quarter nine eight. San oh. Stefano win the fourth quarter, 28-23. Hmm, very weird. Yeah. Very much like leaving things in the tank for the final quarter is a weird <laughs> thing to do, but fair enough. Yeah. Um, it's very like, hey, Sassari, if you had a 23-point quarter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, San Stefano, nothing about them suggests to me they should be able to pull out a 28-point quarter because they all they ever do is kind of scratch to win quarters by like three or four at a time and yeah they just you know I don't know if it's like an intensity thing against a, a slightly you know Sassari and not deficient on talent by any stretch but a couple of guys out there in Badoon and Spanu who would kind of rather play it cool and relaxed than they would do you know get flying up and down and I wonder if after 30 minutes of having to deal with Santa Stefano coming at you like a train you know do you mentioned the um, the press in the Mercia game earlier, but you know, dear arms start to get heavy in the fourth quarter. And all credits, San Stefano, they did this with their entire starting five playing forty minutes apiece and no minutes from their bench. So 
being able to <laughs> muster that kind of fourth quarter effort off the back of five guys playing 30 minutes already is pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah sure. shout, shout out to them. Yes. Okay. Uh, belt. Um, I will go Esparza, I think, just because if we can't give the belt out to the best guy in an Amiab loss, we probably won't get to do it again this year. Yeah, part of me is like Bedzetti had 37 in a game that they won something rather than just stop someone else lifting a trophy for a week. But um, I also didn't see that game <laughs> like because yeah, it was only on Italian TV. I know the belt's kind of an obscure concept, but I don't feel like we can give it out for a, a game we didn't watch. I mean, it, it was bad enough having to give it to the guy from Juventus after we got messaged to tell us we should watch the game where they beat Gran Canaria. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, three a.m. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll go. I'll go Esparza because Malaga have kind. Of, I think Malaga have had a rough season and just by like stuff not going their way. And I think as arbiters of you know what we want to see in this sport as we come and talk about it every week I think we got to celebrate stuff like that so I'm going to go Esparza he also right. was responsible for 44 out of Malaga's 54 points so that's pretty good playing to the belt yeah I respect it alright cool that'll do and yeah that's us done thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time we will peace cheers <laughs>